Hello, hello and welcome to the EPL show here on FNR Football Nation Radio for your weekly dose of English football. Josh Parrish here with Oscar Rutherford. No Nick Hughes this week, feeling a little under the weather, so uh, COVID safety is uh, is paramount here at the studio, so we always take that very seriously. So he's out, out as a precautionary measure. Uh, but me and Oscar are here to talk FA Cup predominantly, the magic of the cup. We saw it here in Australia on the weekend. We saw it in England as well. Uh, Oscar, what did you enjoy most about the cup ties that we just saw? Yeah, I, well, thanks, Josh, for the for the intro. Well done. Um, I know you've never really done this kind of thing before, so I, I appreciate you. <laughs> I'm usually off screen. I'm usually yeah. just sort of, you know, throwing in random comments from behind the producer's desk. But, yeah. You know. And I mean, without the guidance of Nick Hughes, I thought we'd be lost. But but you know, fortunately, hey, there's an hour to go. Anything oh, could happen. That's right. That's right. So I don't. Don't wanna, don't count your chickens. No, that's right. Okay, we we don't want to take take for granted how we've gone so far. <laughs> um, no, yeah, it it was it was a really good weekend of of FA Cup action. I thought there were lots of really interesting results. I mean, I loved I loved seeing Macaulay Gillespie score against Chelsea. I think that's that's excellent and that's hilarious. Uh, there were a few cup sets. There was Borum Wood beating Bournemouth, which was really interesting. There was uh, Forest beating Leicester as well. Um, yeah, thumping so, Leicester, four thumping one. Leicester. That's that's absolutely right. Yeah, so there were there was there was lots of good stuff. I think the uh, purest magic of the cup comes out when there's like some League Two or non-League side coming up against a Premier League team. And the Premier League players have to slum it in like mm. tiny little <laughs> dressing rooms and change rooms. And we saw that with Kidderminster Harriers on the weekend. West Ham uh, apparently didn't get the memo that Kidderminster mm. was supposed to do the giant killing and managed to break hearts in the last minute of regulation time and then just about the last minute of extra time as well with goals from Declan Rice and Jared Bowen. Uh, but they pushed them all away, Kidderminster Harriers. And, uh, and Declan Rice showed his appreciation for you know his... Uh, non-league uh, colleagues in in a pretty unique fashion, going into shower with the other players. It's an it's an interesting way of going about <laughs> it, isn't it? It's it it's it's a it's a kind of camaraderie, I guess. Just uh, real respect. I mean, you know, not a West Ham fan, but that's class. That, yeah, like <laughs> I'll share a dinner table with you. I'll eat in the same room as you. I'll shower with you. Like all these different ways that we can show. The, the 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 shared experience that we all have. Yeah, look, it's it's odd. It was it was an odd day. It was West Ham played terribly the whole game, and they kind of really got lucky to escape with it because of Declan Rice, as you mentioned. Uh, you know, there was also images coming out post match of David Moyes and his assistant going and having a a a, a beer or something with the Kidderminster mm-hmm. ma- managers as well. So there were there, there was lots of. Camaraderie, just proper and, English football. Yeah, men that's right. Just sharing their it's mutual the appreciation for the yeah. for the sport. Uh, so Declan Rice, uh, as this uh, headline in mm. the Times goes, uh, breaks hearts in FA Cup, then joins joins Kidderminster victims in showers. Victims, <laughs> yeah, that's curious, intense. curious word word <laughs> choice. Uh, because the away dressing room facilities are so limited at the non-league surrounds of Agborough Stadium, great name by mm. the way. Rice decided to join the players of sixth tier Kidderminster Harriers and congratulate them for a truly admirable performance. Declan Rice has showered with our lads, Russell Penn, the Kidderminster manager, said. 
It's things like this that will live in their memories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure a naked, De- naked Declan Rice would live in your memory. I was going to say, to be fair, <laughs> if Declan Rice were to shower with me, I would remember that for the rest of my life. Yeah, too. for better or worse. But yeah, it, it would leave an impression of some kind. So mm. you know, I, if that's what they got out of the day, good for them. <laughs> well, certainly a memorable day for Kidderminster, even though they didn't go through. I, I did see an interview with Declan Rice during the week. He was talking about his, uh, his childhood hero. Any guesses? No. He he came up through the the Chelsea Academy. Any any guesses about who he might have idolized? I would guess like a Frank Lampard or something. That seems way You're too close. obvious. You're close. I'm close. Same era. Captain leader legend. Mr. JT, of course. J well, I I, I was thinking positionally close. No, right? okay, no, JT, era sorry. Wise. Sorry. So, no. Apparently John Terry is is Hands down, Declan Rice's all-time hero. So much so that he almost decided on uh, on wearing the number twenty-six, right, uh, as on the back of his shirt. Um, but apparently, when he got cut by Chelsea, he was famously released by the club when mm. he was fourteen or fifteen, and they've have come to rue that mm. decision. Uh, John Terry actually called him, so you know, there you go. Because yeah, where's John Terry now? What's he doing at the? Uh, he's he's. Working at Chelsea and at flogging Chelsea, yeah. NFTs. That's yep. that's the, that's the two right. things yeah, he's largely right. up yeah. to. So mentoring young players yeah. and participating in a pyramid scheme. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if the two are linked at all. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I don't really know what to say to all this information. This is this is this is very interesting. Yeah, look, I mean, if if John Terry is 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 Declan Rice's mentor when it comes to strange ways to show appreciation, yeah. then maybe Declan Rice will return the favour and head over to Chelsea and join Mason Mount there and whatnot. Yeah, well, I, that's what I was saying. Yeah. I mean, a kind of mentor-mentee relationship, does it does it include JT calling him up and saying, um, you know, how's your, your contract situation? Yeah. you think of staying <laughs> at West Ham? Any, any chance of uh, shifting on over in that transfer window? I'm sure that's all par for the course when it comes to, to mentorships. Uh, yeah, and I mean, if I'm looking for advice on how to treat my mates and how to behave properly and stuff. I'm going to John Terry first and foremost. So, you know, of course. Of um, course. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad John Terry continues to have an influence and, and, and mould the next generation mm. of English talent. The reason I bring up John Terry is because not mm. everyone is such a big fan of him no. as Declan Rice is, no. including Wayne Rooney. wasn't his biggest fan uh, during his playing days. And there's a new Wayne Rooney documentary coming out on Amazon Prime, so... Rooney's been dropping tidbits and doing interviews in the lead up to it. One thing that caught my eye was his revelation that in a 2006 game against Chelsea, he intentionally wore longer studs so he could hurt someone. Mm. Such was the hatred, the visceral hatred between the two teams and, and Rooney saying that you know he knew they were a better team than them and they were going to lose and he, he couldn't take it. This is during peak Mourinho era where he was riling up everybody left, mm. right and centre. And, uh, yeah, he used to wear the, the plastic moulded studs with the, the little metal tips, mm. and he changed to a, a full screw-in metal stud. Still legal, mind, but the longest yep. he could legally wear, just so he could leave a nice big bloody hole in, in John Terry's foot, which he, he went and did. Yeah. And apparently this may lead to retrospective sanction as the Football Association, quote-unquote, investigates mm. an incident from 16 years ago. It does it does feel a bit harsh, doesn't it? It, do, it does feel a bit. Well, I'm not really sure what it's achieving in in a lot of senders. I mean, sure, you want to send a message, but as you say, it's about 16 years too late, isn't mm. it? Not yeah, surely the statute of limitations is now <laughs> passed on that one. <laughs> statute of limitations on football related injuries. Yeah, that's right. Um, 
But yeah. there is precedent, as you were saying off air, there is precedent for autobiographies to come back and bite players. We're just, of course, alluding to Roy Keane being fined and I think banned for a few games for admitting that he deliberately hurt a player mm-hmm. many years prior as well. So, I the mean, father I, of Erling Haaland, Alpha yes, Inga yes. of Manchester Man City, City yeah. which, I mean... Roy Keane basically snapped his leg in half. It was mm. a far more serious challenge than, than Terry's. I suppose it's just discouraging players to to be overly sharing with their career history mm. and the things that go on behind the scenes. If I want to hear these stories. Exactly right. These are the kinds of things that make it much more interesting, mm. kind of that insight into what's going on in a player's head at a time, even if you can't get that as it's happening, to kind of look back and understand what was happening behind closed doors and then if the FA keeps going around punishing players for that it kind of creates this well why would you tell anyone that at any point because you're always apparently subject to some kind of criticism or interrogation for it yeah and I look I don't think anything will come of this I I assume Mm. this is just um a standard response that the FA would give if a journalist asked them, are you going to look into this this Rooney admission? And they say, oh, yeah, we're looking into yeah. it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But I would be astonished if, you know, long after he's finished playing, Rooney somehow gets like a touchline ban for a tackle from 2006. Because, yeah, I, would it be a touchline ban as opposed to a, a fine or something? I mean, I you know. can't suspend the guy. No. He's not going to hit the pitch anytime soon. I unless mean, things at Derby get even more dire than they already are financially. And it's kind of, you know, a fine. I think we've all read the stories about the, the things that Wayne Rooney's putting his money into at Derby. I think he can probably manage to pay a fine. Like, I'm not really sure what that's achieving in, in any case. Yeah, a bit of an odd one, but it does lift the the veil, I guess, on the mentality of the players at that point in time and the uh, intense rivalry between the Premier League clubs, which other players, you know, including I think Rio Ferdinand, has said that such was the competitive tension between the top four, the big four as they are called in those days, uh, that they, it actually impacted the England camp because you couldn't suddenly go from arch rivals who wanted to kill each other on the field to great teammates in the space of an international window. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting to hear because obviously lots of this was happening at a time that I was probably too young to fully comprehend what was going on or appreciate. Yeah, making me feel old here. Yeah, exactly. Gonna... Just to just to let you know, Josh, that that you have to be of a certain vintage to be able to look back on this time period and and reflect fondly. Um, yeah, and and it's you know it's the kind of really interesting insight that you that you get with hindsight. Um, you know, and Wayne, of course, then talking about. You know, he talked about lots of things throughout the documentary. I think we'll move on to more of those things as we go and the impact that having his son had and how that kind of brought him back onto a straighter path and, and one towards a more stable, secure future. But, you know, I, I was hearing you, you say before the show, Josh, about kind of some of the things Wayne got up to and the things he was mm. doing with his spare time and the the mentality, the 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 effort and the, the thing, the sorry, the steps he would take to kind of, achieve that winning which was so important to him at that time and how that may have had longer impact longer term impacts on his career yeah i'll just read out a few quotes here he said uh of that incident we were talking about i changed my studs before the game i put in longer studs because i wanted to hurt somebody if chelsea won a point they won the league at that time i couldn't take it the studs were legal they were illegal size but they were bigger than what i would normally wear he was later injured in the game when his foot twisted in the turf 
which was the infamous metatarsal injury before the 2006 World Cup uh, that, uh, that you know, limited his uh, effectiveness in that tournament. I think the word metatarsal mm. entered the English lexicon yeah. at, at that point in time. Um, but in another clip, and this is from, uh, you know, an Amazon uh, documentary about Rooney's career and his life that's, uh, that's coming up, hence the publicity around these stories. Uh, he says when he finally got to the World Cup in Germany, he suffered a tear in his groin muscle at the end of his first training session in Baden-Baden, but was so desperate to play that he did not tell anyone. So he, he just tore his groin, didn't say a word, said, I'm fed up with all these injuries. Mm. I'm just going to keep playing and hope for the best. And then eventually, you know, he has a terrible tournament and uh, ends up getting England knocked out in the quarterfinals after he stamps on Ronaldo. Yeah. It it makes me kind of wonder about what players are doing today that we don't know about because it feels like today we have such a you know close eye on all of these things and players are being tracked all the way and constantly being assessed and being tested for all sorts of things. So can players still get away with this kind of thing? And presumably not. And just to see how that's changed in such a short space of time, kind of the complexion of what being a player is in the modern game and what that looks like is kind of to see that dramatic mm. shift is really interesting. And I think the other way that you would hope the modern game has made some strides is in sort of player welfare from yeah. a mental health perspective. And that's one thing that Rooney really gets into in this doco is his early struggles with the attention and the pressure at Manchester United and apparently he would look at gaps in the match and training schedule and work out when he had a 48-hour window and would just basically lock himself away and binge drink for two days straight and then put eye drops in and go back to training and hope nobody noticed, mm. which is like pretty scary stuff. It's, it's Yeah, it's, it's the kind of thing that you hear stories about happening in the 80s and mm. the 70s and stuff and then to hear that someone so modern and relevant to us was kind of mm. doing those same things, yeah, it, it it it's it's so interesting just to have that light shined on you kind of wonder what it's like to be one of these young superstars with all the eyes of the world kind of on them for a certain period of time and everyone expecting mm. so many things and and some players seem to manage it so well but to hear Wayne open up about that kind of thing it's really almost jarring just like I I don't want to say surprising because it's the kind of thing that you'd almost like, like it, it feels understandable and realistic as 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 a response, but it it it, it makes you glad that you know in the modern world of football that in theory at least there are more kind of preventative measures in place to stop these kinds mm. of things from happening. But how can you, you you can't ever kind of guarantee that it's not happening, can you? And so you wonder what in twenty twenty two the modern day best player in the world or best young talents in the world are kind of going through. It is interesting as well to see that this period coincided with his most prolific and successful time mm. in football. You know, he when he was bursting onto the scene as a young player, he seemed totally invincible and I guess just nobody knew when he was able to get away with it or if they did know, they turned a blind eye, it seems, because uh, it just wasn't the culture at the time to talk about or address that kind of thing. Uh, it's sort of amazing that he was able to burn the candle at both ends in that respect. And then when it gets to a later point in his career, as you say, he was a little bit, you know, more well-behaved and back on the straight and narrow and had his alcoholism under control and certain things. Uh, you know, he actually, his performances dipped and you could see by that point, he's, I think his body had, had caught up with him. You know, his uh, performances 
and also his just physical capacity to take off and accelerate and change directions and so forth. He was a different, like he looked different, he moved differently. And I think it, the fact that Rooney's career maybe didn't live up to the early promise and the early expectations might be something to do with the way, what he put himself through in those early days. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's sort of a speculative theory, I suppose. But. It's it's obviously hard to know. Who, like, mm. who knows what it, what it would have been like otherwise. But, but yeah, the, he is a player who we, we felt physically kind of deteriorated a bit mm. earlier, a bit more rapidly than we see lots of players. And so, Well, he did start early, to be fair. Like, he was playing as a 16-year-old, yeah. scoring against Arsenal for mm. Everton. You know, he was the most expensive teenager in British football history. So I suppose he, he probably had his physical peak earlier and there was, some of that was, was natural, but also it didn't seem like... Uh, at least in the early part of his career, he took particularly good care of himself off the field. And, you know, with all of the players who've kind of broken appearance records and lasted a long time, they seem to have a little, you know, different habits, I suppose. I imagine, I mean, obviously lots of the kind of contemporary talk around Wayne Rooney is what he's doing at Derby County and how impressive he's been. He's getting these results. He's wrapping these players, his arms around these players and overcoming lots of odds and fighting and grifting and all those kinds of things. And he's getting lots of praise for that. And rightfully so. And you kind of wonder how those early years, those formative experiences kind of shape him and put him in, in give him that perspective so that he mm. can kind of at this stage in his life have these life skills and have been through these experiences. And I wonder kind of, you know, how, how much that that's the case that having had been through that, he's kind of benefiting now and having that perspective and, and that understanding of the place of football in the broader world and and. and you know, I, I I would like to think that it makes him, for example, a better manager because he understands kind of the the extreme situations that players obviously find themselves in maybe better than a lot of others. Um, and, you know, Derby County, what they're going through, it's not the same to what an individual like Wayne went through at that age. But I, I would imagine that that he, that hindsight makes him a more well-rounded individual at this point. Well, uh, that documentary on Wayne Rooney's life is out very soon on Amazon. I'm definitely going to be watching that one because it seems like there's a few uh, interesting revelations. If it's interesting enough for you to get in trouble with the Football Association (laughs) uh, 16 years after the fact, then then I'm in. They'll start marketing it like that, won't they? (laughs) Why why, why are the FA investigating Wayne Rooney now? (laughs) For stuff that he said in this documentary. So uh, speaking of players' behaviours off the field... Jack Grealish has come under a little scrutiny as well. I won't talk about the Leicester players because I think that's just nonsense. Mm. But, uh, you know, who hasn't gone out after a bad day at work? But uh, Jack Grealish having, I would say, a terrible season at Manchester City, but it doesn't seem to have had any impact on the team whatsoever. They seem to be able to function just as well without him. Uh, but he still hasn't uh, covered himself in glory with uh, clips emerging in, in the team, tabloids of him being turned away from a from a bar because he was he was too drunk to get in. And it's not the first time that, that Jack Grealish's off the pitch antics have come under scrutiny. Uh, what did you make of this? And and what do you think City and Pep Guardiola will make of this, given the money that they've they've invested in him? Well, I mean, Pep Guardiola's already given a bit of a response, hasn't he? And he's kind of been very defensive of his players and doesn't think that they've done anything wrong and perhaps he's right and it's always nice to see a manager kind of stand up for his players like that. I I think Pep Guardiola is speaking from, 
Yeah, and like this, this kind of stands up broadly when you talk about all the terrible things that particular young footballers do and all the bad decisions that they make. And it's, I, I just all, all all of this this conversation and all these things about Wayne Rooney just kind of really reinforce in my mind just how much scrutiny these players are under all the time and how careful and 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 how mm. how intensely they have to surveil their own lives. And it, it seems so difficult for these young individuals with you know, mm. so much energy and potential and money and wealth and money and wealth and and power and fame to kind of manage that in an effective way. And so it's, it, it, it just, the, I, I, I'm rambling a bit, but I suppose in my mind, the conclusion is something about how do you foster an effective culture within football, which is obviously so hard because of how varied and diverse all of football is, but a, a culture where these kinds of situations are managed and that the players have the support and the knowledge and the awareness to know how to best go about these kinds of things while still enjoying themselves and having a good time because what we don't want to fall into the trap of is saying it's not okay to be going out and doing anything whatsoever kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I I think these stories get viewed through the lens of how the players are performing on Mm. the pitch a lot of the time. And if they're performing well, it's like, oh, you know, so-and-so has a pint with the fans, what a legend. And if they aren't, Mm. you know, it's look at this, you know, idiot wasting their career away and look at all the money they're earning and do they deserve it and so forth. And you mentioned Pep Guardiola's response, which is um, I'm upset because they didn't invite me, mm. which was a pretty good line. Yeah. But then he sort of gave the game away afterwards. He said, I'm so upset they didn't invite me. I hope next time they can do the dinner properly at 8 o'clock uh, sober and invite me. So he actually is pissed off about it, I think. The the next line gave gave the game away there. Uh, but in terms of, uh, of Grealish, I mean, we were speaking to Johnny Gould, uh, you know, broadcaster and Aston Villa fan a little while ago about sort of uh, system at City and why it's almost a waste of Jack Grealish's talents. You know, he, he's in a straight jacket now tactically where it doesn't really matter what he does on the field because the collective is is the emphasis as opposed to sort of Roy, Roy at the Rovers individualist stuff that he was doing at Aston Villa. And all he has to do now is the ball gets switched out to him and he controls it and he passes it back to Cancelo. Mm. And, you know, any anyone can do that. Mm. You know, so I I wonder whether this move is living up to what he thought it would be. And, you know, it's easy, easy to overanalyze these off-the-pitch yeah. incidents. But I can understand, you know, your focus drifting if, you know, you're having a terrible campaign, you've barely scored any goals or done anything of use on the pitch and you're still top of the league and it doesn't matter who plays in your position, the team is still just as good. Well, I think when you mentioned the tendency to overanalyze these things, because he had these kinds of incidents occur whilst he was at Villa too, didn't he? Like he yeah, every now and again. Throughout his career. But I think that the lens... That we view for a different lens because yeah, yeah, he was we, playing we, so Yeah, we view well. that really differently, don't we? Because, you know, at one point he's the star, most important player that Villa have and isn't it great all these things he's doing for his hometown club and now it, it feels all a bit further detached from reality and a bit more he's part of this cosmopolitan superpower machine and, and, and look at what it's turned this sweet young man into kind of thing like the 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 narrative around it changes really dramatically on really short notice and I think quite unfairly towards players well with that I think we'll take a break and on the other side uh, let's talk a little bit more about the FA Cup and the Premier League fixtures that have happened midweek with uh, big implications for the relegation battle uh, with Newcastle picking up a much much needed three points
We're back here on the EPL show on FNR, Football Nation Radio, Josh Parrish and Oscar Rutherford with you until 9pm. Boreham Wood, the cup set of the weekend. There was plenty of nearly cup sets in the form of Plymouth Argyle and, uh, of course, Kidderminster Harriers uh, who came so close and were greeted with a naked Declan Rice for their troubles. Yes. Uh, but Boreham Wood actually got the job done against high championship opposition in AFC Bournemouth. And uh, Adam Hurry, Football Clichés, one of my favourite accounts, pointing out that Bournemouth has become the first team ever to play Bournemouth with an entire starting 11 of players who have extremely Bournemouthy names. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, Tay Ashby Hammond, you know, the goalkeeper. Mm. He could play for Bournemouth. Yeah, I, I hear. Will Evans. Oh, totally. David Stevens. Mm. Connor Stevens. <laughs> Connor Stevens would play left back for Bournemouth, <laughs> surely. Kane Smith. Oh, uh, yeah, yep. Uh, he's born with through and through. Mark Ricketts. I'm seeing it, yeah. Yeah. Frankie Raymond. That's borderline. That's the least Bournemouth uh, name I've Jacob heard. Mendy, Josh Rees, Tyrone Marsh, and the most Bournemouthy of all, Scott Bowden. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. No, I think that's an excellent observation. I don't know what makes a Bournemouthy name. Something maybe English and like ever so slightly posh. Yeah, I think that's right. You've you got to get that balance right, yeah. Tay Ashby Hammond has got mm. to be the, the clincher in that no, regard. No, I'm shocked that wasn't a Bournemouth 11 you just read out for me, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, great. They've beaten them at their own game. They have, and it was, you know, ex- excellent to see, isn't it? That's what the FA Cup's all about. I think Boreham would have drawn Everton in the next round of the Cup. Um, awesome experience for them, awesome to see, I think, a fifth-tier team mm-hmm. getting, and I think it's the first time ever that they've reached the fifth round. So, you know, all those cliches about the magic of the Cup and, and what have you. Yeah, so cool story. Absolutely. 1-0 win. And uh, for Bournemouth, I mean, pretty disappointing result. They have brought in a lot of talent on deadline day. Uh, Todd Cantwell, chief among them, but five deadline day signings. And I was reading they actually almost can't afford to miss out on Premier League promotion because they've hemorrhaged £60 million since they were relegated. So for a team who had a couple of successive promotions back in the day, and I I mean, it seems as if their their financial structure and their wage bill is is ballooned since Mm. then. Well, the story of like every English football club, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I think with that, yeah, with that, with that context in mind, I think Bournemouth will kind of be okay to have lost. Like the FA Cup wouldn't have been their primary goal. I mean, they're yeah. currently third in the championship, mm-hmm. absolutely, in with a shout of betting out, you know. And Black two, two games in hand on the yeah. teams above them as well. Yep. Yeah, so they're, they're well and truly in the race. Um, I think they started the season superbly, like they were well and truly out in front at the beginning, but, um, yeah, Scott Parker, I think, is the manager there now and he seems to be doing a reasonable enough job and, yeah, I think the main focus will absolutely still be on finishing in that top two. Well, Premier League, speaking of their intended destination, uh, there was some Premier League action this morning. Newcastle 3, Everton 1. Uh, this one, a very, very important result for Eddie Howe's Newcastle down near the bottom of the table if uh, the expectations of their new owners are to be fulfilled. Uh, Kieran Trippier with a key contribution, uh, an assist from a fantastic corner and a direct free kick goal, exactly what they signed him for in January. Uh, but Frank Lampard's tenure at Everton not going off to the healthiest of starts. No, I mean... I did watch this game and full credit to Newcastle because I thought they played really well. It was just about the best I've seen them play under Eddie Howe. I mean, the 
the combination of, of the midfield and forwards, Everton just couldn't really get through at all. And it, it looked like Joe Linton looked really comfortable with where he, with where he was. He was contributing meaningfully. Uh, Joe Willock was really excellent. Um, he was kind of everywhere, all over the pitch, winning the ball back and, and what have you. You saw Chris Wood play and you saw how he will kind of contribute to that team and dropping deep and participating in the build-up. And, of course, Alan St. Maximum was the star of the show and he Everton just could not manage what he was offering because he, he he was really incredible. So, yes, as you say, a massive three points lifts them out of the relegation zone, at least for now. That's obviously really tight and, of course, one of their main relegation rivals being Everton, uh, particularly so now uh, with with that result means that, you know, it's it's even tighter, which which makes it more exciting, I guess, to, to observe how it will pan out. But, yes, as you say, Frank Lampard's first Premier League game uh, got a win in the FA Cup at the weekend, less effective this morning. Uh, ju- just to comment something to say, Everton looked a lot more energetic and a lot more driven and, and excitable in the way that they played, but ultimately still no clear patterns or structure that could be made out. We saw Deli Ali make his debut as mm-hmm. well. He really struggled to make an impact, um, like kind of really hardly touched it for the hour or so that he was on, so he, he really wasn't great. Donny van der Beek as well also came on, um, didn't do much either. So, you know, it's 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 early days for Frank and, and the mm. team looks much more enthused to be on the football pitch than they were under Rafa, um, but just yet to kind of channel that into an effective structure or... or well, the structure they went with was a 3-4-3. Three, three. Do yeah. you think that suits Everton's players? Or was that just, you know, to... Uh, for this particular matchup with Newcastle, well, so the the three was played against Brentford in the FA Cup as well, and uh, I think it, it's kind of it, it is still early day, so it is hard to judge. Um, I, I think it does suit in in lots of ways in the sense of having that support higher up the pitch. I mean, the 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 wide the the fullbacks, the wingbacks were really mm. quite high up, particularly against Brentford, although they kind of dropped back more against Newcastle. Um, I think that from a defensive point of view, it looked a lot better for Everton, even though they considered three against Newcastle. I, I understand. But but in terms of under Rafa, the pressure on those defenders, so someone like Seamus Coleman kind of having all that, that, that burden of kind of having to sit back so far and not be able to kind of play his natural game of moving up the pitch, I think that kind of really was weighing him down. And so he looked a lot more... Mm able to express himself and a lot happier and, and, and willing to contribute than he, than he had previously. Obviously, that's off a small sample size. So I, th- I think in lots of ways it does suit at least the defenders and, and what they want to do. Whether that'll work out, you know, obviously we'll wait and see. But but, but I, I think that anything compared to what Rafa was doing will look like a, a much better approach. Yeah, there certainly wasn't uh, much to go off or to build from in the previous regime. I do note Andros Townsend playing as a left wing back, which always seems like a bit of a slap in the face to me if you're a winger and the manager says, oh, you're not quite good enough to play as a winger, but, you know, we'll we'll move you a little further back and uh, maybe you'll make an impact then. Yeah, um, so Mikolenko, the the signing who who I think played on at, sorry, during the FA Cup on the weekend and Mm. was brought in to replace Luka Dinia, he was... Was he injured? I think he was injured this morning, which would have been mm. why Andros was playing. Um, yeah, and as you say, the wingers being Damari Gray and I think uh, Anthony Gordon were both yes. playing up there. Yeah. Um, 
Look, that's right. I think that Andros Townsend, though, is the least effective winger out of out of those three. Like, he, he provides the least drive. And, he and scores, like, two bangers a year, but aside yeah. from that, you know... He, he definitely provided something in, from set pieces in a way that what's been lost with Luca Dean leaving, that, yep. that, that, that there's clearly a place for him and a role that he can play. But, you know, in, in the instance of this morning, he's clearly kind of the least direct or driving player that, that Everton have in those wide positions. So I think that kind of suits what Frank's... I think trying to do, trying to kind of add some impetus and some attacking intent into the team. We uh, were speaking a little while ago about Manchester City and how players almost instructed not to shoot from outside the box mm. too often anymore. You know, so with very few exceptions, and you know how football's all about generating high percentage opportunities. Now, don't think Andros Townsend's got that memo yet. He loves a crack from range. Just just spams away if he's ever got the opportunity. He certainly does. He didn't really get the opportunity this morning. I mean, as I say, th- th- this morning's game was was it wasn't really about the forwards for everything because they no. couldn't really get near the ball for the maybe after the half hour mark really. So it was kind of hard to assess large amounts of that play. A lot, lo- a lot more of it was about yep. how can Everton transition from defence to the midfield into the attack, and the answer was they couldn't really. So the problems kind of lay there. There was no real composure on the ball. No one could kind of hold the ball and keep possession for a meaningful period. Andre Gomez struggled. I mentioned Deli Alley didn't have a good game. Donny van der Beek didn't do much. And then obviously you've just got Alain who can win the ball back. But in terms of maintaining the ball, that was kind of the clear issue in my mind from what we saw with Everton this morning. Elsewhere in the relegation battle, Watford couldn't keep up their end of the bargain, losing 1-0 to West Ham away from home. I guess not a fixture that they expected to win necessarily, but the uh, formation did catch my eye with Roy Hodgson debuting a 4-4-2 with four central midfielders. <laughs> so just ultra-narrow Diego Simeone spec. Mm. Just keep it tight, lads. By all means, enjoy it, but enjoy it by being effing disciplined, yeah. <laughs> as Neil Warnock might say. That's absolutely right. Yeah, well, I mean, we've seen the results early on because, what, they've, they've played two games and got a clean sheet against Burnley and then just considered the one against West Ham. I mean, you know, obviously still lost the game, but it, it looks like a much more solid team, I guess, which is what Roy Hodgson's going to bring, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, he's never been one to really fly off the handle, aside from that one game in the Euros for England where he subbed <laughs> on all of their strikers at once. Yeah. That's that's the one time I can remember him cutting loose, but the rest rest of his managerial career has been focused on four four two discipline and structure. And Watford knew what they were getting when they when they got him. Like that's that's exactly yes, what you're. That's expecting. what you sign up for when you yeah. hire hire yeah. seventy year old Roy Hodgson. So that leaves them in nineteenth place. Newcastle climb out of the drop zone into seventeenth. So two points clear now. Uh, with Norwich just below them on uh, so 18 points for Newcastle, 16 points for Norwich City, uh, one behind on 15 is Watford, and then bottom of the table Burnley manages to pick up a point at home to Manchester United. United had uh, many many chances to win this game, and a few goals disallowed, including uh, one Rafael Varane header that took repeated viewings for at least for me to figure out what mm. the hell had happened. Yeah, look, you, you showed me it, Josh, and I definitely took a few goes to work out what 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 was going on, why why the goal had been disallowed. Yeah, and there were a few. I saw I saw there was a great save by Nick Pope later in mm. the half as well. A couple of really great opportunities for United, but they only got the one goal. Um, so, you know, a bit unfortunate for Ralph and and, and United, but 
Burnley have been grinding out results, haven't they, in recent weeks? Obviously had the, that long period where they didn't play any games. So I guess this, this, is, this is what Burnley do, isn't it? They get these kind of results when they maybe expected goals would say they don't deserve it, but they kind of find a way. And we saw Wout Weghorst get involved. Yes, big Wout. Um, yeah, picked up an assist, I think, combining with Jay Rodriguez. You know, maybe that's the, the new dream team up top. <laughs> Um, Jay Rodriguez's reaction after he scored mm. that goal. I don't know if you saw him pounding the turf. <laughs> and, you know, it looked like he was frustrated, but I think he was it was just uh, overcome with emotion after he scored that one. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, well, I think it's it's been a, it's been a tough season for Burnley, hasn't it? It always is. sometimes always, you just got to let it out. It always feels like a tough season at Burnley, and but yeah. it kind of looked a little bit like End of the Planet of the Apes. Just yeah, <laughs> damn you. I <laughs> don't know what to add to that. No, I, I, I don't really know where, where, to, where to take that. But it was a, it was a nice move from, from Vood Vekos to open up that space. He shimmied off two mm. United players. It's a, a little bit more uh, balletic than I was expecting from Big Vood. He's a really good player. It's a really great acquisition. I mean, I mentioned that Chris Wood did well at Newcastle this morning, but he didn't do he, he didn't show that kind of finesse on the ball that Vekos mm. did. So I, I really think that 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 is it that's a massive signing for Burnley and if he if he can keep coming up with that kind of stuff then they can keep edging those kinds of results and move towards safety but with that being said the competition around obviously not great teams in the context of the premier league but you know the way newcastle played this morning they they look like like that would beat burnley mm. so i'm kind of uh, i'm I'm not yet convinced that Burnley have enough in them to stay up because they, they're still that their grindy approach may maybe have met its match this season. Two more points on this game from me. Firstly, Paul Pogba getting a goal, mm. his lovely finish. Mm. Still find the offer on the table for him for a four hundred thousand pound a week contract extension a little ridiculous from United. Uh, I still think they should move on from Paul Pogba. Uh, but, you know, he gets a few goals in junk time at the end of the season when there's nothing left to play for, and then, then suddenly they uh, they might end up re-signing him. It's it's the bizarro world of Manchester United. It's the kind of thing that you wonder what influence Ralph Ragnick has over that kind mm. of thing, if he can... I, I don't know how much say he, he has or is intending to have or is the plan for him to have when it comes to, like, transfers and stuff as opposed to general footballing philosophy. Well, because he's not going to be director of football. He's just going to be a yeah. miscellaneous advisor. Yeah. So I don't see what authority he could possibly wield. Mm. Not and not formally anyway. Maybe maybe the executives will do what he tells them to do, what he advises them to do. So, but Yeah, and, and I mean, I don't, you know, I wait to see whether, ha- how... Ralph utilises Pogba more as the season goes and whether he can get the best out of him. Those are just all footballing mm. cliches, I know. But, but yeah, I mean, mm. I, 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 I hear what you say when you say it feels a bit excessive to put as many as much into Paul Pogba as United seem insistent on getting. Yeah, I mean, I've spoken about this on this show before, I think, but Pogba is one of those players that he's like a Goldilocks footballer. Mm. Everything has to be just right yeah. for him to bring his best and I just don't think those those types of players are worth accommodating certainly not on you know the highest equal highest salary in the league 
and not at Manchester United because things aren't going to be always just right, no. are they? You know, you need to be able to perform under duress, yeah. under adverse conditions, under terrible coaching. Absolutely, yeah. And Ranić so far has not, not convinced me, by the way. I mean, a okay. result like this in in the Solskjaer reign, um, people would have been, again, baying for his head. But because there's been a takeover and because there's some German technocrat in charge who you know seems to speak with confidence about these matters... Uh, then suddenly I think there's a, a collective assumption that United are suddenly on a corrective path, which I think is a little far-fetched. So are you passing judgment already or are you, are you, are you saying... Well, I just don't see any particular improvement out of this United team. Uh, this is the same kind of performances they put in under Solskjaer several times um, against the same opposition. There are many games where United have struggled to beat Burnley um, and I don't see that changing anytime soon when... You know, you've got a manager who's obsessed with pressing, but against these opponents that United traditionally struggle to beat, they've got the ball 65% of the time, so you can't press when you've already got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough... <laughs> like, if you're, if you're football, mm. and as RB Leipzig's is, is built entirely around when you don't have the ball, mm. what do you do when you do have the ball Yeah, for large swathes of the game? And that's why sometimes these ideas don't necessarily translate. Mm. You know, Liverpool, all we ever talk about is the pressing and Klopp and Gagan pressing and this, that, the other. But they've actually got a plan in possession, mm. the way they involve the fullbacks, the way they make late runs into the box, uh, the way that their wingers can be isolated one-on-one and create, you know, the way that their centre forward often drops deep and, and tries to disrupt the opposition central defence by giving them a should-I-stay-or-go dilemma. Like, there's multiple things that Liverpool do that are... Clearly, I mean, obviously they've got a better first team squad, but they are clearly they've clearly got a plan in possession. And United are still not seeing it yet. All, all the all, the entire focus seems to be structural, um, defensive, and this idea that the players have to run more. Mm. And I mean, Ronaldo didn't even start this morning, did he? In in the sense that people. Well, will, I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing. Yeah, well, exactly. People will often pin the blame on a forward like Ronaldo, kind of not contributing to the broader team setup, but. He wasn't even starting and this problem kind of still appeared to exist. With that being said, yeah, and, you know, this happened many times in the Solskjaer reign as well when we say, you know, they were maybe a bit unlucky because they probably should have scored three or four in the first half and kind of didn't. Um, But how many times have we said that this season? Yeah, exactly. How many times, I mean, even in the, bringing it back to the FA Cup, Mm. they were knocked out by Middlesbrough. Yeah. And they should have had that game wrapped up well before it ended up going to a penalty shootout. Yeah, no, definitely. I, it's, I, and, and so I totally hear what you're saying in the, in the, in the, the fact that what, what's really changed in the last mm. couple of months since Ralph came in. There still, still seems to be those kinds of problems that exist. Mm. With that being said, the, if, the, if the argument or the idea of the, the Ragnick revolution, the kind of footballing philosophy overhaul at Manchester United, that's kind of years and years of entrenched ideologies kind of in theory being uprooted. But as you say, how much... What was there before that, you know? What is is it replacing? Well... Just a hypothetical idea of United, maybe wingers, maybe attacking football, (laughs) maybe maybe this, maybe that, that that has no real tangible uh, connection to how football was played in the 2020s, you know? Yeah, and, and... I, you know, United continue to look like a team made up of individuals rather than having mm. some kind of coherent plan, particularly in possession, as you say. So I'm, I, I, you are persuading me that I feel that maybe 
there should be more product at this point from United in terms of we should be seeing at least seeing the signs of some progress towards something new, which up to this point aren't really evident, mm. so we, which would make these kinds of results perhaps a bit more digestible if, if, if we had seen them. Well, I think we'll take a short break and then we'll look ahead to the upcoming Premier League fixtures this weekend. Uh, even tomorrow morning we've got games left, right and centre at the moment uh, and games on Friday morning as well. So we'll have a look at forward to some of those fixtures and uh, we might even get stuck into the biggest controversy of the English footballing weekend, mm. uh, animal cruelty. Yeah. You heard that right. <laughs> That's coming up on the EPL show. I thought I'd heard every chance that was usually belted out at a football ground on the terraces. They're all, they all kind of blend together mm. after a while. Who yeah. are you? You're getting sacked in the morning. That's how your cat feels. No, that one was new. That one, no. that one took me off guard. But uh, <laughs> the Watford fans are condemning or perhaps making light of uh, the video that emerged of West Ham defender Kurt Zuma uh, engaging in straight up just animal abuse. Uh, of his pet cat. Uh, West Ham said they were dealing with the matter internally and then turned around and started Kurt Zuma mm. in the next game. So I'm sure he's really feeling the brunt of that internal club punishment at this point. Uh, but West Ham fans clearly waiting for an incident. Uh, as soon as somebody went straight through Kurt Zuma, that's how your cat feels, belted across the terrace, <laughs> which is, I mean, good banter at the very least. Yeah, and... Uh, you rightly point out the fact that, you know, even David Moyes has come out and talked about what an animal lover he is and how disgusted he is by the behaviour, how much he disagrees. Very noble of you, David. would like to distance myself from Kurt Zuma, but also can you play centre-back for yes. us next match, Kurt? Thanks. Y- yes, and that was the essence of David Moyes' commentary, wasn't it? It was a kind of, we wholly disagree with this, we absolutely condemn it, but also I need to win games of football as manager of West Ham United, and so in that case... My, my tolerance for animal cruelty is relevant to my, or relative rather, to yep. my need to win football games, which, you know, we all is make, unsurprising. Uh, you know, moral relativist decisions in yeah. our day-to-day lives. And uh, David Moyes decided that, <laughs> you know, uh, Kurt Zuma playing centre-half was more important than all the little pussycats around the world. So, But uh, this is actually quite serious, not only because of what Kurt Zuma did, but also... Because, one, I think it's going to end up with, and we're already seeing some pressure from West Ham sponsors to actually cut mm. the guy. Or they're re- I've seen a few brands associated with West Ham saying they're uh, reviewing their partnership with the club, which so potentially affects the bottom line. From And it's obviously a PR disaster. But for Zuma in particular, I don't think this is the kind of thing that gets easily forgotten. I don't think this is the kind of thing where we move on to next week's headline and no one talks about it again. I think this will follow him around every football ground for the rest of his playing career in England. I, I, I think that's absolutely right. I, I don't think that we're going to be thinking of Kurt Zuma without this in the back of our minds at any point. And, that, and I guess the counter to that is the fact that footballers kind of carry around all sorts of baggage all the time that we kind of just sweep under the rug or we kind of mm. look over in, in all sorts of instances. And that's the unfortunate reality of modern professional sport, isn't it, really, that, that 
this kind of thing does feel like it happens regularly. And even if there's an immediate response, which in this case there kind of was, but also not really because he played the next game. So it's kind of... It, it, it would be consistent with the pattern of how we treat professional footballers than if they were to just kind of, well, keep moving forward. Mm, yeah, I'm not talking about it. I mean... You know, I, I think fans look, overlook all sorts of things, but it, when it's presented as plainly and as black as white as, you know, uh, harming a helpless, defenseless animal, that's hard to forget and hard to move past. Uh, but we're going to do just that because we're going <laughs> to preview the Premier League fixtures uh, because I, I don't want to talk about that video any longer. Uh, tomorrow morning coming up, uh, Norwich City versus Crystal Palace, Tottenham versus Southampton and Man City taking on Brentford. Which one of those will you be watching, Oscar, if you've got a pick? I think uh, the Villa-Leeds game is also tomorrow. Oh, Aston Villa-Leeds as well. My mistake. At 7am, kicking off 15 minutes later. So you can catch 15 minutes of Man City-Brentford and then flick on over to, I think probably the picture of the fixtures is Aston Villa-Leeds for mine. That certainly looks like an appealing one, doesn't it? Because, Mm. of course, Villa have done... I mean, they've been a, a team of real interest in the last couple of weeks because of the transfer business that they've done so they've got a really interesting team they're playing really interesting football um, which is getting good results and Leeds meanwhile are a team who may be less active in the transfer market but they've kind of pulled themselves together and look like they're Mm. getting some of their results again so yeah I I think the Villa Leeds game will be really interesting I think Spurs Southampton as well is probably the other most interesting contest in the sense of the the observation of how Conte's style is progressing and whether we see the likes of Kulisevsky mm. feature more prominently and, and how, how that works in, in a Premier League context against the Southampton team who kind of consistently provide relatively entertaining games. Yeah. Well, so I think that there are a couple of really interesting games. Well, that's the thing with Tottenham and their transfer business. They've ousted the, uh, the soft Spaniards. Mm. Brian Hill, off yeah. you go on loan. Uh, uh, the South Americans, uh, they've gotten rid of the Celso yeah. and, of course... Uh, the enfant terrible that is uh, Tangi and Dombele. Yeah. I'm really sad about that. I really wanted him to do well, and uh, I guess he was never really a, an Antonio Conte player. No. But bringing in Rodrigo Bentancur and Dejan Kulusevski from Juventus, Fabio Paratici uh, working his connections to good effect there. Uh, how do you think uh, they'll shape up in uh, uh, with the inclusion of those players, and do you think they'll be a success? Well, just to say that Southampton, I think, are a kind of really like they're a great litmus test in lots of ways mm. for what you kind of because the good teams can obviously beat Southampton, but they provide a really good test and they kind of they're a real up and atom kind of yeah. uh, high pressing units. They that, provide that kind of intensity. It's a that, rigorous examination of your of kind of how's your touch and how's your physicality when it comes to the Premier League. Yeah, and so yeah, I, th- I think that's that sums it up really accurately. And so in that sense, you know, we'll see what. Kulisevsky mm. and Bentancur are kind of, are, are you up for this? Are you made for it kind of thing? And and I, I'd i be surprised if they weren't. I, I think particularly Kulisevsky, I think he kind of would function quite well in terms of he, he's quite happy to be physical and direct and, and those kinds of yeah. things. So I, I, I'd imagine that that he's, would... He's quite a big body. He's, he's yeah. kind of got a dainty set of technical skills, mm. but uh, in quite an imposing package, I suppose. And Bentancur... I I really rated him at the start of his Juve career when he burst onto the scene, but I, I just don't think he's kicked on particularly. But he's one of those kind of, I guess, tempo-controlling defensive midfield players who's just an anchor and just provides stability. Not particularly exciting to watch, but he's got 50 caps for Uruguay. So, yeah. you know, they don't 
you know, they don't breed him soft in Uruguay. I'd be surprised if he uh, <laughs> if he struggled. No, that's right. And obviously, throw in the fact that it's with a manager like Antonio Conte, and and he, you know, we know mm. lots of instances where he can get the best out of these kinds of players and and have them adapt to an effective system and build on their weaknesses, kinds of things. So that they, I'd, I'd be surprised to see them not come out more well-rounded players from the Antonio Conte experience, um, and the, you know, see them. If the, if there is something to be concerned about with these players, kind of see them build on that. So that that'll be that'll be interesting to see. I think particularly in the context of a Spurs team that generally seem to be working themselves out a bit better. We're seeing Harry Kane contribute a bit more regularly and consistently, and that's obviously mm. of great benefit to to Tottenham. So you know I, I, they they come in at an interesting time at a stage where we're kind of questioning how far can this Tottenham team go at least this season? Where, where Where's their ceiling? And, and I think we'll learn a lot about them tomorrow. Man City versus Brentford is an interesting game for me, uh, purely because of this, this graph that came out. Uh, what a nerdy point to make. It's mm. interesting because of a graph, yeah. but uh, uh, visualisation data-wise uh, from the Athletics' John Muller, uh, who controls territory, possession by zone in this Premier League season. So basically it's a colour-coded football pitch split into squares, it's what six by five uh, grid of squares, and it shows you sort of the inside left, inside right, middle, left and right wings, and the zones up the field with the box and so forth. And it's color coded blue for if your opponent is controlling that area, the pitch um, has more touches than you, and red if you, if you've got uh, more touches in that area. And Manchester City, as you would expect, is just totally dominant just red wall to wall the only zones where their opponents have more touches than them are in their the opposition's own penalty area and also the far top corners um of their uh so where the opposition get corners and um i guess you you don't generally seek to play into those areas when you're you've got the ball actively into your own no, uh, no. towards your own corner flag. So that, that's universal across the board. So Manchester City just sheer domination wall to wall territory wise. Uh, whereas Brentford, they've got their own box, the area just outside their own box, the far top corners, and they're just one little splodge on the left wing near the halfway line. So. They don't have the ball much. It's more what they do with it. No, I, and, you know, obviously this graph tells us perhaps a bit more in terms of how tomorrow is going to pan out. Probably the Man City tells us everything that we need to know, which is that I'm not expecting to see a lot of Brentford possession, um, which is a shame when you consider the potential for someone like Christian Eriksen to feature. I'm not, I'm not sure where he's up to in his progress, but, you know, it would be great to see see that kind of thing happen yeah look we, we, we've spoken about man city before and the fact that um from a neutral perspective watching their games they're perhaps not the most interesting or entertaining over the course of a 90 minutes on the basis that mm. the opposition doesn't get the ball and i'm not particularly expecting brentford to get the ball when they get it though they're going to pump it forward as quickly as possible and Absolutely. hit the flanks yep. and uh they're not going to i don't think they're even going to bother playing through the midfield against city they're not going to want to give away the press they they're kind of a unique team in that they they sort of bypass the midfield a lot of times if they need to yeah and 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 thomas frank's a really interesting manager he does lots of interesting things um and you know i i think he'll bring a bring an interesting approach to it because that's what he tends to do so yeah as you say the fact that the brentford don't necessarily rely on 
their midfield to kind of transition the ball or, or, or control the game. Um, so, so perhaps in that sense, Brentford are the ideal matchup in some ways. Mm. Uh, that's probably a bit optimistic. I don't, I don't um, disagree because we saw what Brentford did to Liverpool earlier in the yeah. season, and yes, the bubble is almost well, not quite burst, but it's it's certainly uh, they're certainly not getting those results and then hitting the form that they did at the very start of the Premier League campaign, but. They showed what they can do to sort of bypass the counter press, if you will, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, because these these good teams like City and Liverpool, as soon as they lose the ball, they will try and hem you in. And City, if they can't hem you in, they will tactically foul you. But if you've gotten rid of the ball already, uh, maybe Fernandinho and Rodri, Rodri and Co won't be able to hack you down before you can start a counter attack. Yeah. If you if you spring together, you know, spring spring forward as quickly as Brentford do. Uh, so that's going to be an interesting one. You'd still expect City to get the result, but then on Friday morning, Wolves versus Arsenal and Liverpool taking on under fire Leicester City. Do you think Brendan Rodgers' job is in jeopardy here with their their form of late? I mean, they. Thumped by Nottingham Forest. Their players are getting slammed for going out to nightclubs after they lose. Uh, they haven't played well at all this season. So many individual errors. So many goals conceded that shouldn't have been conceded. They've just been super underwhelming for me. Like quite quite a mess compared to previous seasons where they've been contending for Champions League qualification. I, If I'm Leicester, I'm not considering sacking Brendan Rodgers. I think that's... Excessive. I think he's done so well, and I, I mean think, it'd be a huge overreaction. But yeah, but they've done it before, haven't they? Kind of thing. I, I mean, if if I look back on even Claudio Ranieri, I'm still I'm still shaken over that decision, frankly. So uh, the 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 balance between being a healthy, sustainable, popular club and kind of being ambitious enough that you're not satisfied with mediocrity is kind of obviously a really thin line that mm. Leicester have to to travel. I I I don't. I can't imagine Leicester are thinking about Brendan in that way because I think that he's done well for an for an extended period and this is kind of he, he has had rough patches before but a rough patch to this extent I think is this is kind of the first one so I I, I don't think it warrants any major considering of his job. Well, playing against his uh, former club always generates a few headlines, uh, but uh, maybe the. Maybe the Leicester lads just need to show a bit more character, as uh, Brendan would say. Tends to be the solution for <laughs> Brendan Rodgers. So, Tends yeah. to be the catchphrase, anyway. So yeah, and, and but but we've seen Leicester beat Liverpool already, haven't we, this season? Am I am I making that up? I'm not making that up, am I? Ooh, um, good good shout, but I'm, I'm I can't quite remember it off the top of my head. <laughs> as, as as we show our extensive research, yeah, um, yeah, it's it's also interesting to observe. From a, a Liverpool perspective, I'm not sure where Sadio Mane and, and Mohamed You're Salah. right, that's right. And just before uh, New Year's, 1-0, uh, Adam Ola-Lukman scored the winner, so uh, on the 29th of December. So, and that that was also at a time when Brendan was under significant pressure, so he kind of, he finds a way to up his game against Liverpool in particular, so that, that, that could bode well for them. Of course, Liverpool, as I was just starting to talk about in terms of their personnel, we'll see who's up and about and who's still around. I'm looking forward to seeing the uh, the interaction between Salah and Mane after the AFCON drama. Yeah. The, they, 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 seem, they seem to have taken it in good enough spirit, don't they? They seem like mature enough individuals to... That's certainly the, what they're trying to project publicly. Yeah. But I do think there's a bit of rivalry there between the two of them. And they, they haven't given each other an assist for quite some time. So <laughs> that was a good stat that came out. They've only assisted each other for like one or two goals this season, which right. 
you know, for uh, the most prolific front three in the Premier League is, is not not ideal. To be fair, they only played in AFCON for a very short period that was very recent in terms of if we're assessing their Premier League assist ratio as a whole this season. That feels quite misleading to look at. To yeah, true, true. So I'll, have to, I'll have to jumble check that stat. But, uh, yeah, there, there seems to be a, a burgeoning rivalry there of stemming back to the renewal of, of Mo Salah's contract initially yeah. because they were signed at the same time on the same money. But then Mo Salah scored all those goals in his first season and was immediately rushed to be extended. I think uh, I think Mane feels, feels a little slighted by that. Jurgen Klopp will sort him out. If I if I were to trust a manager in the league to sort out that kind of, if there were any... Is this town big feelings? enough for the two of them? I guess we'll find out on Friday. Jurgen Klopp will make the town big enough. <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. That's all from us tonight here on the EPL Show. Thank you very much, Oscar, for your company. And we'll catch you again next week.